0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 7th of March 2022 and this is episode Two hundred and forty-five. On today's Dispatches podcast I talked to historian, journalist and author Dr Brian Feeney about his research into County Antrim during the period from 1912 to 1923. Brian spoke to me from his home in Belfast. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in stretcher bearers and their work during the Great War?
1: Well, I have an odd job for a historian. I work in a a scientific department at Imperial College in London. The Department of Bioengineering deals with many of the scientific and research challenges that our wounded veterans, particularly from Iraq and Afghanistan, face. And it's been my job to look at the broader context of wounding, um, everything from the point of wounding until a decade later and the implications of those injuries. So I had a particular interest in what happened at the moment and the point that they get wounded. And at the same time, I was writing a history of the medical evacuation system in the First World War. And I started to think more about that in terms of the point of wounding rather necessarily than the personnel. And I was thinking who is at the point of wounding? And it's obviously the casual themselves, but Increasingly, from 1950, you have members of the various stretcher-bearer corps, and they aren't there, as many people, to carry the casualty away. They're to do much more of a paramedic role. They're to do what we'd expect them to do today, at the point of winning a battle, and that is to save the life and then keep it saved as as the life is moved along the line of casualty evacuation. And once I realised that there were stretcher bearers at the point, then I could recognise the skills that they and the significant difference they make to the ability to save a life. And then I became absolutely preoccupied. with
0: So let's start at the very beginning of the First World War. What was the average establishment of stretcher bearers in a, a sort of standard infantry division at the start of the Great War in 1914?
1: Well, the first thing that I want to say is I would like to be able to be more uh, concrete about numbers and dates. But there is nothing about stretcher bearers in the official. And you're lucky you come across a line in the regiment. However, we know some things. The first thing we know is that stretcher bearers were just seen as medical porters up to the end of 1914. So they were people, predominantly uh, bandsmen. Uh, who were able to carry a heavy load. That was really thought to be the primary qualification that they had. Uh, I always remember reading a, a Royal Army Medical Corps article, and they talk about people who are too big or too stupid to do proper soldier. And that's a key to people who are allocated bearer work right at the beginning of the war. So they are literally there to be pointed at a casualty, to carry the casualty away, and then take them to a doctor where they'll receive medical care. And we know that they were people from the battalion who were moved into that role briefly while it was required. So it's impossible for us to say there were X amount of stretcher bearers in every battalion because they weren't. They were allocated as was needed. And as the actual need began to be understood, the role changes radically.
0: Now, am I correct in assuming there were also stretcher bearers in, for instance, field ambulance units uh, and other infantry uh, in other elements of the, the, the army, such as an artillery battery?
1: There were stretcher bearers after 1915. There were stretcher bearers wherever they were likely to be able to be sent out to meet the wounded. But in the early months of the war, they weren't specifically allocated to artilleries. Uh, People are casual about the use of the term stretcher bearer for the early months of the war. It may be someone who's come across who, again, is helping them carry uh, heavy things. And particularly when you see them on artillery uh, batteries, you go back to this idea that they're strong and capable of, of portering. And quite often bearers are used to carry large amounts of ammunition because they're careful. So if you see a stretcher bearer, connected to an artillery battery, ask carefully what they're doing there because they might not be doing casualty evacuation. But otherwise, bearers are allocated to field ambulances, to infantry battalions, to field hospitals, to casualty clearing station, and every component where medical care might be given or expected to be received, there would be a bearer team there.
0: Now, did the size and establishment of stretcher bearers, I suppose, in an average infantry division, did that change in numbers and uh, skill sets as the war progressed?
1: By the beginning of 1916, uh, we know that each infantry battalion had a team of 16 stretcher bearers. This was usually divided into two sub-teams of eight, and they would be allocated a leader from within their own ranks. But it's more important to understand how the role of the stretcher bearer has radically shifted at this point. There has been recognition by the Army Medical Services, both back in Britain, but much more importantly in France, that this, this ability to take a skill to the point of wounding and save the lives that are found there is absolutely key to how the whole military medical system is going to work. So by the time you've got 16 bearers per battalion, what you've effectively got are 16 paramedics per battalion. Highly trained, highly skilled, and and respected by both the military soldiers so there's been a radical shift. Um, the numbers, officially, the numbers are are these these 16 bearers per battalion. But it depends what the battalion's doing. If they're going to need extra bearers, they can come from battalions that are that are less engaged, that are to the rear. So when there is expected to be uh, a, a particularly active part front, as many bearers are brought forward. Per battalion as possible and it's the marks to team to move to a different battalion and a different part of the front and the system can absorb that there's not a lot of very complicated paperwork and it's also worth noting that it isn't just bearers that you need in large numbers you also need stretchers uh, if you're a stretcher bearer you need to be able to bring your stretcher with you and they become as precious as almost as lives in really busy periods of the battle nobody wants anyone to pinch their stretchers and if you can pinch someone Else's stretches, or even better, enemy stretchers, then the bearer team will be very happy indeed. But again, it's difficult for historians to pin down the numbers, to pin down the moves. But it was whatever was needed wherever it, it could go.
0: Who became a stretcher bearer in the army? You've talked about. Um... Bandsmen in some regular units before the war um, were doubled as stretcher bearers in times of conflict. But was there a particular type of person or civilian who became a stretcher bearer uh, during who joined up in 1914, 15, 16, and maybe was a stretcher bearer after that?
1: I think that there are, there are three types of people that, we can, I, that I can identify with confidence. Um, again, because we don't have much in the official record, it's difficult for us to see a specific career path. But the first one that I think will, probably everybody will be able to guess are conscientious objectors. So I think, uh, and, and this, is, this, is, this is information that I gathered as I've gone along, that about 30% of the bearers that, that I've met, that I've encountered are conscientious objectors and uh, you find them across the medical care system. So you find them as wound orderlies, you find them working in field hospitals, field ambulances, and you find them in particular on ambulance trains. And one of the things that's, that's very interesting is how the, the various religious groups that, that uh, provide conscientious objectives in this space eventually start providing training for their own members of the medical corps. So if you are a Quaker, you will go to their training camp at Didcot and learn how to be an orderly. You'll you'll effectively learn how to be a paramedic. You're not going to get a, a medical degree there, but you're going to get the kind of training that will stand you in very good stead either on an ambulance train or as a stretcher. So that's the first group of, 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 that we can identify within the stretch of errors on the Western Front. The second group are people who've had a bit of experience in that space. So people who've worked uh, in mines, who've worked on big canal uh, building projects, on road building projects and big industrial sites. These are the kind of places that have a similar injury uh, type to those experienced by the soldiers on the Western Front. And there were health teams within mines uh, put together that looked like very early paramedics. And it's a really interesting place for people to think about doing some work. If you join a team in a factory or in a canal building project, you are more likely to want to put that experience to use when you get to the Western Front. So they, they bring their experience from occupational medicine, from industrial first aid into that space and the third group of people are people and it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting point to see because much like the army today when you joined the army then it was seen as an opportunity for for social advancement and professional advance the army offered you training courses it offered you the likelihood of joining without a professional skill and coming out at the end with a professional skill and this is particularly the case for stretcher bearers. And this is particularly something we see with stretcher bearers. They identify the kind of skills that they're going to learn during the war, particularly working with regimental officers, as something that they will be able to adapt to after the war. And we see the presence of former stretcher bearers as hospital porters, as uh, as ambulance drivers in civilian life, as uh, operating theatre assistants, you see them. And what's really interesting is the next generation become medics with a college education. So it would appear that the stretch of errors, expectations of their own skills and what their families subsequently can become uh, is indeed delivered by the experience they, that they have uh, of learning as a bearer but overall what you can say they all have in common is that they are they have initiative they volunteered they have initiative and the regimental medical officers want someone who's going to be a paramedic who's going to be point a part of the team this is a group of people with the ability to learn and great initiative as well as courage and strength. Uh, And so that's what they have in common, whether they're a conscientious objector or they want to learn a skill after the war. Much is required of their initiative and their ability to learn.
0: Were stretcher bearers expected to take up arms in the event of their unit being attacked? Were they still considered combatant or were they not? They weren't.
1: They weren't. Uh, They weren't. And because I, th- I think there was, if their unit came under attack, the need for them was going to be even greater. So the priority is always that they do their job as stretcher bearers. They aren't allocated weapons. Um, we know that RMOs bring sidearms. Um, at, you know they use for executing mules who are drowning in, stre- in shell holes um, that kind of thing I don't know if stretcher bearers do bring their own weaponry they might have I haven't come across an account of it but no they're always non Um I think Afghanistan is the first time that we armed our medical uh, team we actually they actually formally gave them um, uh, semi-automatic weaponry and tra- and training and they carried weapons Otherwise, they have technically been. On the top.
0: Are there any sort of stretcher bearers who've written diaries or memoirs that really stand out for you and tell us about exactly what it was like to be a stretcher bearer on the Western Front in the Great War?
1: One of the big problems with stretcher bearers is that they come by and large from a class that doesn't write poetry, that doesn't write books, that doesn't think that their experience was particularly valued. So we're still working through primary sources. If you go to um, the Imperial War Museum in London, for instance, one of the best sources that I read was, I think, Diary of a Manx Stretcher Bearer. Uh, and which gives a daily record of what he's done. And it provides fascinating details, like the fact that he feels he wants to learn more medicine and he asks his wife to send him out medical textbooks. And he records that in his diary. Uh, we have some reprints, uh, some reprints, which are lit- which are the these Amazon versions where a diary has been taken and scanned and, and printed out. And a particularly good one is one called Bearers Up, which is a group of bearers who are attached to a field ambulance. And they provide some really fascinating detail. It's difficult to read because it's literally a scan of of their typed reminiscences, but it's really worth it. And I think Bearers Up is something that I would send people to. They have an extraordinary level of detail that I didn't know until I read. So for instance, one of the stories that they tell is how they are used at the executions of soldiers how there's always a bearer team there because somebody, a group, will need to bear away the body of the executed man. And in one particular case, they tell of how they were standing. They had a very young member and he didn't want to watch the man have the hood put on him, be tied to the stake or tied to the chair. And he turned away and the commanding officer of the firing squad instructed him to look and watch the execution, at which point he was copiously sick all over the commanding officer, to the great delight of the fellow members of his team. But then when you read, you go on reading the account, then they, it gets serious again um, and they have to wait for the firing squad, for the coup de grace. And then it's bearers who untie the rope and who carry the body away to the pathology tent where it's analysed before burial. These are the kinds of details that we find only in diaries and most of them we find in archives. There are a couple of books that have been published. I think there's one called Memoirs of a Stretcher Bearer. But because they don't really recognise their skill, they don't recognise their role in the casualty evacuation system and they don't recognise the value that they have in saving lives. They write about things like the journey, the visit the king to the to the battalion um and when they go home they tell you they tell them things that they think their readers will want to know they don't they don't really say this is what my my daily life was like and it's something that but actually the western front association has given me a fantastic forum To say to people, if you go and look at your family's records and a member of your family was a stretcher bearer, read the diary. Don't underestimate what they did. And this may be a source of extraordinary tech detail. It's something that we need to always focus on. It isn't so much what battalion pool were. It isn't so much what their rank was or the complicated bureaucracy. What is it they do on a day to day basis? Because then you truly understand the truth of the war.
0: I suppose following on that, how did the stretch bearers cope with the trauma, wounds and sights that they witnessed in terms of, Did it affect them disproportionately maybe to to other soldiers?
1: We don't know. Uh, We don't know how many come home and then struggle. We know that their their employment rate is good, that that, that the the system of, of learning skills and going and working in a hospital, and perhaps that was helpful. That would be speculation on my part. There are things that we understand about them where they had been, where things get better. So right at the beginning of the war, into 1915, before their role was understood, soldiers would often give them a hard time when they were waiting in the trenches to go over the top the bearers wouldn't be armed they'd have only their stretcher and the soldiers would say you know do some fighting get a rifle stand around with your stretcher and that was enormously upsetting to them enormously upsetting but by the end of 1915 that stops because everybody recognizes their skill and they recognize the difficult things that they have to do and they write about it in their diaries so so one always hopes that that in some way gave them. They have to manage a dying patient. They have to choose which patient they take out um, and which patient they go back for. We know that if whoever they left behind preyed on their mind, and quite often, even if they were sent to the rear or they had come off their duty or their part of the line was quiet, they would go back out to the look for people that they they had left behind. We don't know the kind of actual psychological cost it took on them, but it must have been considerable. And also because of the responsibility invested in them by the soldiers of their battalion. By 1916, the soldiers of their battalion want to recognise the stretcher bearers because they think if the stretcher bearers have seen them, then they will find them if they're wounded. And that's an extraordinary level of responsibility to confer on someone. And they try to do that as much as they can. Um, I I talked about this in in the talk to to the membership uh, um, just before Christmas, but my husband was once in a London taxi where the taxi driver told him about his great uncle who'd been a stretcher bearer at the Somme. And he'd been there every day of the Somme for the length of the war and without a scratch, he said. And then he came home and he saw his family and then he went up to his bedroom and he shot himself. So we know that there are cases where stretcher bearers suffered very greatly. But because of this lack of official tracking, because of the lack of official status within army bureaucracy, we don't have any way to follow that up. But whenever you study the work, whenever you study the level of commitment that they make, long bearers are out longer uh, on the battlefield than anyone else. You can only imagine that it must have have accorded them great suffering.
0: And how are they remembered today? Are there any formal sort of memorials or um, tributes to them uh, on the Western Front?
1: There aren't. Uh, Because they were scattered across battalions and field ambulances, uh, they aren't Stretcher bearers aren't singled out for special notice. It was really, when I was thinking about the centenary celebration, what I wanted to do was get to as many people as possible and tell them about stretcher bearers. But in fact, stretcher bearers are very often in memorials. They're often carrying the National Arboretum, uh, uh, the memorial that we had to the wounded of, of the 21st century wars, has two, has two bearers carrying a casualty on the stretcher. So they're there if you look for them. They're there in memorials to the wounded. Uh, many people have included them in broader sculptures that look at the consequences of the war. So it's not very difficult to find them, although there isn't anything very specifically uh, dedicated to stretcher bearers, because I think that would be difficult to identify a core, well, a core core where you, that you would memorialize. And I recently spoke to a Western Front Association member who had found a medal that talked about that was a stretcher bearer medal. And he said, I, I, you know, I thought there wasn't a, a corps. I thought they were attached to their various battalions. And what that told me was that and he knew it was from the early 1920s at, at the latest, that the, some of them gathered together and identified themselves as being stretcher bearers. And they produced a little medal that they could wear in perhaps their reunions. So they identify, but we very quickly after the war lose sight of them as a specific medical cadre. If we think about paramedics today, they come from the stretcher bearers of the First World War. So we really shouldn't.
0: And one related question I should have asked was: did the did the technology and equipment that stretcher bearers had in 1914 differ vastly from the end of the war? Was it much more advanced in 1918 than than at the beginning?
1: Technology isn't really radically different. What's radically different is what they're allowed to do and the training that they receive. So if you go from the beginning of 1914 from the bandsmen, from the big guys who can carry heavy loads, and that's their skill, you have people who are what we would recognise as paramedics today, who are capable of administering painkillers, of of managing pain along a long journey. We have people who can splint a a femoral wound, a femoral artery and and keep that the bleed minimized for the length of the journey you have people who administer vaccinations they cut they frequently end up doing that. they manage the trench foot in their battalion, uh, and they they are able to take complex decisions about the allocation of skills um, and whatever is necessary and supplies. And they do that in conjunction with their, their radical, regimental medical officer. So it's not really an improvement in technology. There isn't really anything that changes very radically from beginning of the war to the end. The Thomas splint doesn't really make a great as much difference as people like to think about. It's really the training of stretcher bearers in how to manage femoral fractures that saves so many lives. So it's radical training. And again, it's a really interesting point to see how flexible the system is. Once gas starts being used frequently on the front, bearers are all sent back to a tarpler, to the training trenches, to try out bearing in a mask, to try out putting a mask on a casualty who's struggling and how to bear through gas. And at what point do you think, well, I'm going to take my mask off and I know that it's going to, this is going to cause me a couple of weeks problems with my eyes, problems with my throat, but otherwise I simply can't get to the point that I need to go to. So again, the system is very flexible. It has absolutely no compunction about recognising the skill that there isn't a problem that they don't have a medical degree because they know that the more training they can get down them the more lives that are saved there's no technological fix Nobody likes that it's much more difficult to put training in a museum rather than a thomas splint but that's the simple fact of the matter is training and learning is how we save lives
0: and that brings me to my last question which follows on nicely where can people learn more
1: People can learn more in my book, Wounded, Um, yes, uh, which is in paperback um, and available from all good independent bookshops and non-independent bookshops and anywhere you get your books from. And within that, uh, I think this was the first time uh, that there was a specialist stretch of error chapter. And I've been very careful about giving my references because you can see where they're talked about. Um, So look for Wounded. If you can find a copy of Bearers Up and you don't mind working your way through a very poor scanning job. It's really worth it for the detail. But wounded is is a really good wounded by Emily Mayhew is a really good place to start. And really, it's just I, I think if you think about where where they where you can't read about it, you can't read about it in the official history. You can't read about it in in the really big histories of the First World War. This is a whole group of people that saved tens if not f- hundreds of thousands of lives and they're simply invisible so the main p- thing that I want people to do is remember the stretch of errors whenever they see them in a statue there are no stretch of errors in Blackadder um, I was very very happy to see that in 1917 the motion picture there were lots of stretch of errors and there were lots of stretching and I was told that when they were filming it that there was a copy of my book Wounded uh, in the production office And so I was very happy to see that that detail was finally being expressed in what I think was a very good history of that part of the war. Um, So all you have to do is remember the stretcher bearer. Remember the stretcher. Remember the stretcher bearer. If you'd like to buy my book, I'd be more than delighted. Start by remembering the stretcher bearer and everything comes from there.
0: Emily, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.